In another of Paul's letters, the book of Galatians, Paul makes a statement that in the fullness of time, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law. Paul says that Jesus came at exactly the right time, at the time that God had intended. If you're familiar with the story of the Old Testament, you know it's filled with anticipation. That the prophets over and over again are proclaiming, he is coming, he's coming. Look up for your redemption draws near. Pay attention because it's getting closer. The time is coming. And it's not until John the Baptist is on the scene when somebody finally gets to say, he's here. But Paul tells us in Galatians, it was at just the right time. Now, if you read uh, Christian scholars who try and answer the question, what made that time so full? What made that the right time for Jesus to come? Uh, They will have lots of very good answers. They'll point to things like the fact that because of the Roman Empire uh, and its spread, uh, what we know as uh, the Roman Empire covered tons of ground in Europe, made... um, made nation across nation borders and boundaries accessible. You may be familiar with the saying that all roads lead to Rome. One of the, you know, inferences of that is that from Rome you can get anywhere, right? Um, there was a universal language in the Greek language, and so, uh, so we watch as Paul travels the known globe carrying the message of the gospel and being able to quickly communicate that message across all sorts of national, racial, and even linguistic barriers because of the universality of Greek. Um, the, the failure of the Roman system, there's so many things that go into this. But have you ever thought, but why not wait? Why not wait to our time? I mean, maybe, why not wait till the innovation of the radio or the television or multimedia in general, I mean, if the need is for the message to go out into all the earths, then isn't Twitter a better medium? Now, we've been looking in 1 Corinthians 16 about this phenomenon of the church being global, this term that means both global and local. And last week, we focused on uh, the global reality of the church, and Matt did a great job showing how even when we don't think about it, the gospel has intersected with every nation. And the only reason we're sitting here today on the other side of the world from where these things went down is because it's flown through nation from person to person across boundaries and borders and missionaries uh, who beget missionaries who beget missionaries. And so here we sit uh, both the byproduct of, you know, a German reformation movement Um, and an English and uh, Dutch resettlement that moves over to the United States, all of these elements come together. And so really what God had planned was international in nature. The message was of universal value. But if we stop there and recognize the global reality of the church, if we only focus on talking about the church universal as the reformers used to call it. If we just reduce it down to this broad reality, uh, then we miss out not only on this other half of the church, but we also miss out on the answer of how Jesus did things. Because Jesus could have waited. 
until there was multimedia. He could have signed a contract to be on primetime television, but what he did instead was in the backwoods of a small neglected nation with effectively 12 men for three years. That's where it began. And as we watch as those men do go over the globe, they do it in the same way, going into those towns, proclaiming that Jesus is king, inviting people into that, and setting up a local church, appointing local elders. And there's a reason for that that's not merely, not merely out of necessity or practicality. There's a reason for that that is deeply rooted Theologically, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. Now, 1 Corinthians 16 is just the closing remarks of Paul's letter. There's not a lot of meat here, but it does provide a very good window into the broad reality of the church in Paul's day, and so it's helpful for this reason. This morning, if you, believe, if you can believe it, we're only going to look at a handful of verses, picking up in verse 13. And reading through verse 18. Why don't we read them together? Paul's letter to the church in Corinth in chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Acacia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunus and Acacius, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. Let's pray. Father, I believe that the message you have for us this morning is one that, that just has come up a lot Uh, in the book of Corinthians. It comes up a lot as we look at your word, and I think one of the reasons is because the truths here are hard for a culture like ours in a day like ours to see. When we have fully embraced uh, the watering down of communication to merely a message and a technology uh, and have forgotten the personal and the relational and have Uh, shifted so hard on these things, uh, it's hard for us to recognize um, that the way we convey the message impacts the message we send. And that you've designed Christianity to be conveyed in a particular fashion that involves, yes, the local church. So I pray that you would teach us this morning, and we ask that you would help us to understand your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in terms of what Paul does in this passage, it's really just two things. He starts by giving just a laundry list of exhortations, and then he gives a commendation. He mentions Stephanus and his household, since he goes on to mention Fortunus uh, and, um, and Acacius, probably that's his household. And he points out that both they have carried the letter the church in Corinth sent, and that they're most likely bringing back the letter that Paul has written, the one we are reading this morning, and he commends them. That's it. That's all that's going on here, but like I said, it's a very good uh, window into the phenomenon and the necessity of the local church. 
First off, look at verse 13 again. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Now, all of that terminology Paul is drawing directly from the military. These are the things that you would hear from a drill sergeant. In fact, if you notice the staccato way he presents it, it's like the barking orders of a general. And this seems to be relatively intentional. Now, we know that the church in Corinth needs exhortations like this because there's a lot of things that could go sideways in the church in Corinth. There's deception and division. There's uh, um, a, a urge within the church to avail itself to cultural trends that don't fit with Christianity. There's all these things going up, going like this. Uh, and so an exhortation like this makes sense. Also, if you were to turn to any other one of the letters in the New Testament and turn to the end of the book, consistently you would find lists like this. Just a list of exhortations. But like I said, it does provide us a window into a phenomenon that's worth mentioning. By using military term here, he is pointing out the fact that although what God is doing is global and involves major players like Paul, like Barnabas, like Apollos, like the 12 apostles in Jerusalem, involves uh, the reality of, uh, you know, something going on at the international level. And we need to understand that. We need to embrace that. We need to support that and pray for that. We have something we need from the global church. Because our understanding of Scripture is going to be limited by our cultural blind spots. You guys know that I quote a lot of dead people, and the reason is because, uh, not because they were smarter than us, and not because they didn't have blind spots, but they do have different ones. And I get nervous about reading all of the books that are published today by Christians in American culture in our time, because generally they all say the same thing. And some of that's going to be good, but some of that's going to share these broader problems, and so it's good to be familiar with the understanding of the universal church to read from other cultures when we can. However, however, when Paul uses military terms here, he's recognizing the fact that Christianity, one paradigm that we understand it through is militaristic in nature. There's a sense where the Christian life, the mission of the church, and Christianity in general, is warfare. Now, this isn't some sort of religious holy war, Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And he says, and our weapons are strong for pulling down all sorts of strong, strongholds of any way of thinking that stands opposed to Christ. But it does use this terminology throughout of warfare. Paul in the book of Ephesians tells us to put on the armor of Christ. It uses this language throughout. But when he says it to the Corinthians here, I want you to recognize two things. One, that he sees, you know, uh, the usual Corinthian churchgoer as one of the soldiers, right? He doesn't speak to them as those who are back at home while the war is waging elsewhere, and that's important for us to recognize this morning because it's easy to open up the internet and see that in some places Christianity is a lot more difficult 
There's a tendency to think that martyrdom, dying for your Christian faith, is an element of the past. But the truth is, more people have died for professing Jesus Christ in the last hundred years than all of church history together before that. Okay? So some of you are familiar with that reality, and you recognize that the war is waging, raging hot in places like Syria. Or maybe you're familiar with the fact that in certain parts of the globe, Christianity is literally exploding. That what we read in the book of Acts of people coming into villages and all in, entire towns getting saved, and new churches being birthed, and the Spirit moving mightily, and miracles being done, that you can go to places in Africa and South America where that is the status quo for what's going on in the church. Where it seems like God is in the move. And in fact, there are more Christians in the southern hemisphere than the northern. There are more Christians in the eastern hemisphere than the western. One of the realities of Christianity being global is the fact that it has literally moved its center all over the globe. First in Jerusalem, then in Rome, then in Europe, then in America, and now throughout Asia and Africa. There was a time where if you wanted to be a scholastically trained pastor, you needed to understand German. If you want to get ahead of the curve now, you better learn Chinese. Those things are true. Those things are true. God is doing an incredible work all over the globe. The war is waging hot all over the globe, but it's also raging here. When he speaks to the church in Corinth and he speaks to them as soldiers and he calls for them to be watchful, he recognizes the fact that this is a warfare fought on many fronts. He says, be watchful, right? The idea here is of a soldier being alert, being on high alert, recognizing uh, that the danger, if you will, is imminent. He says next, stand firm in the faith, right? The idea here for a soldier of standing firm is stand your ground. Stay where you are. Don't retreat. Hold the front. Now, when he says here, act like men, some of your translations may say be courageous. This is the literal phrase he uses, act like men. If you read the old King James, it says uh, quit like men, which I have no idea what that means. It's old English. Um, but I want to point out here that uh, a couple of things. First, this phrase he's speaking not merely to the men of the church, but also to the women. This is a general epistle written to the whole church. Second, the idea in Greek is not be a man as opposed to a woman, it's be a man as opposed to a child, okay? That's the emphasis of this phrase. He's asking for them to be courageous and stand their ground in maturity, but this is something the church of Corinth needs to do and something Paul can't do for them. If I can give an illustration, many of us uh, have discovered that the, the body of Christ has people who are tremendously good apologists, defenders of the faith. People who can take the questions and the criticisms and the misunderstanding of Christianity and lay them to rest with logic and with passion and with winsomeness. But that, the danger in recognizing those people exist is thinking that they're sufficient for the church. 
You know what's really interesting? In Ephesians, Paul says this, that God has given to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers. Now, I think you could add to that list apologists and many other things. But what he says next I find fascinating. He says he has given them to equip the saints for ministry. Okay? And so he sees all of those great gifted folks that we might call soldiers, the missionaries, the evangelists, the ministers, the pastors and teachers, and he says their role is just to hand out the weaponry. Their role is just to act as the armory. Their role is to equip the whole church so that the whole church can do the ministry. He says here, uh, finally, to be strong. Here's, Here's the point that I'm trying to make. It's a couple of things. One, the Christian life for the entire body of Christ is active and not passive. We cannot get caught thinking that Christianity breaks down to those supporting the troops at home and those waging the war. And second, second, the importance and the value of the local church, of being part of a local church, is directly rooted in the fact that the battle is different here. It's directly rooted in the fact that there may be general principles of war you can glean from any quarter, but somebody's got to hold the line here. Yes, many, many people in Africa and in Asia are becoming Christians. And the global trend of Christianity as it has been for 2,000 years is on an upward swing. That's no justification. That that's, brings no sympathy. That brings no comfort when the church in America is, you know, shifting in a different direction. And the majority uh, articulation of people's belief systems on surveys now is none. Jesus speaks to his disciples in Samaria And he says, you know what, you look at the fields and you say it's two months until the harvest. And he says, but I look in the fields and I say they're already white with harvest. They're already ready to be reaped. Notice the next thing he says in verse 14. He says, let all that you do be done in love. See, this is another thing that makes the distinction, makes the importance, stresses the value of the local church. Love can be manifested in little ways at long distances. But when he says, let everything you do be done in love here, he's recognizing that the soil Christianity grows in is love. He's recognizing that what it looks like to grow as a Christian is to grow in love. If you look over the exhortations that are given to Christians, many of them are followed by the phrase, one another. Love one another. Pray for one another. Walk with one another. Encourage one another. Pick one another up, etc. Okay? That means that the status quo for what it means for everything to be done in love can only be done in direct and deep relationships. How did Jesus begin the church? By calling 12 men to come and to be with him, to walk with him, to serve with him, to live with him, 
to do life together. And what do we see in the early church? Yes, we see the church spread across the globe, but not, you know, homogeneously distributed. We see it in these small local churches. And there's still a tremendous amount of unity within that church. There is the church in Corinth, and they meet from house to house, and they gather together, but there's one church. There's unity there. And as we saw last week, the church in Corinth is taking up an offering for the church in Jerusalem, a church that they've never met, to take care of their personal needs. And so the church is more than the local church, but it cannot be less than the local church because of the necessity of love. The way Christianity works, the way that it spreads, the way that it's conveyed and communicated, the way that it builds up and grows is always, quote, in love. And that requires relationship. You don't just need to identify with the church. Or in the language of our day, you don't just need to identify with Jesus and despise organized religion. It's not enough because it's not the way Christianity works. I want you to just recognize this morning that if we could reduce the value and the expression of Christianity down to merely a message, just a bare naked statement, a press release, that God is totally capable of a neon sign version of that in the sky broadcast every day for years. But that's not what he did. Recognize the fact that the Bible maintains that God wants to reveal himself, has not done the things that he's done in a corner, has proclaimed who he is because he desires to be known, and the pinnacle of that is that God took on the limitations of a single human being who spoke one language and traveled no, no more than a hundred miles from his hometown of birth. Why? Because God is love. Because what God wants to say was said tangibly. You know, when the Apostle John talks about the message of Christianity, as he opens up 1 John, he says, that which we have touched, that which we've seen with our own eyes, that which we have heard, that which we have embraced, that message we proclaim to you. And so the local church is not merely a front line of this great warfare of the global church. It's not merely a recognize that the soldiers, uh, based on their location, are broken into platoons. It's also the fact that although there is this great universal family that God is making as he adopts all these children, that there are also localized families to live out that expression. The kingdom of God is universal in its scope. It bridges every boundary you can think of. It breaks down every barrier, but it is always expressed in local colonies. And you cannot be a part of the church universal and avoid and ignore the church local.
Now let's look at the household of Stephanus, verse 15. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Acacia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. And so we learn here about these men, Stephanus, Acacius, and Fortunus, a couple of things. First, we see that they were the first converts in Acacia. That means when Paul rolled into Corinth, the first guy to respond to the message was Stephanus. In fact, all the way back at the beginning of the book, Paul points out that Stephanus and his household are the only ones he remembers personally baptizing. Okay? One of the things that probably means is after that point, it was Stephanus and his household doing the baptizing. When he calls them here the first converts, he uses the same word that was used a little bit earlier in chapter 15 that was translated first fruits. Okay, it said that Christ was the first fruits of the resurrection. And if you were here for us with chapter 15, you remember that the idea there is that what happened in Jesus was only the beginning. When he uses this word for Stephanus, he's recognizing the same thing, that the church sprung out of this beginning. But he also tells us here um, that they have, quote, devoted themselves to the service of the saints, and then he calls them to be subject to such of these. Now, a cursory reading of the New Testament makes very clear that if we had to give a title to these men, we would call them pastors or elders or overseers or shepherds. Pick your term. But that's where this idea of subjection comes to, comes from. This is where this idea of ministry of co-workers and laborers comes from. And what I want you to recognize here is Paul the Apostle calls for them to be in a particular type of relationship with these men in particular. I want you to remember that the church of Corinth loved good speakers. They were all about quality teachers. They had broken into parties, and amazingly enough, every one of those parties involved somebody who was not a part of the church in Corinth. I am of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas, of Peter. I'm of Jesus. When he finishes the letter in this way and he says, you know what, you should be of Stephanus. He's directly addressing this idea of the importance of the local church. I've said it before and I'll say it again, but you don't just need a podcast, you need a pastor. That's clearly the implication of what this is saying. And if you look at the way that the church is designed... God hasn't given merely teachers to the church. He's given pastors. And when you look at the role of the elder or the overseer in the pastoral epistles in 1 Timothy and Titus, what you see there is one of relationship. In fact, 1 Timothy makes a comparison and says that these men should be good fathers because if they cannot manage their own household, how will they manage God's household? And so he sees this as a local family, a local expression. And I know we get uppity about the phrase be subject, or this is the same phrase that's often translated be in submission. But the idea here is one of order in the sense of unity. It's recognizing the fact that some of the roles in the church are leadership roles. It's recognizing that some of the roles uh, in the church are, um, are parenting roles. 
that if we're going to be a family, that there's going to be, uh, you know, these roles in existence. But I also want you to notice the type of people Stephanus and his household are. Okay, first off, it points out that they were the first converts. Now, they don't get extra credit for that. The idea here is not, hey, don't forget that when you were still resisting the truths of Christianity, Stephanus raised his hand, so you should really pay attention to him. He knows what's up. Okay? That would be a direct misunderstanding of the reality of the gospel itself, that it's only by God's grace that any of us come to know him. But when he points to them being the first fruits, he is recognizing maturity. He is recognizing that they've been around a little bit longer. A pastor I used to listen to said, look, we're all patients in the same hospital. It's just some of us have been around here long enough to know where the medicine is. When he reminds them here that Stephanus has been around since the beginning of the church, he says that as being something significant. But that's not all he says. Notice what he says next. Um, He says, they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Let's deal with that phrase, service of the saints, first. That word service is often translated ministry, but in modern English, ministry can be something that comes with fame or with honor or with vestibules or all of these things. The word is the same word that would be used for what a slave does when he clears the table. Okay, it's the most general word for menial tasks available in Paul's language. And so what we see here about the household of Stephanus is that they were servants of the church. And it doesn't mean that they didn't have the capacity or the position to rule. They, he calls them to be subject to them. But from the beginning, they were servants. And if you look at the way that Jesus sees leadership and authority, this is exactly how he talks about it. He says to his disciples, you know that the Gentiles lord their authority over one another, but not so with you. But I tell you that he who is the greatest must be the least, and he who is to be the greatest of all must be the servant of all. Okay? And I just want to clarify, I don't have time to get into this. The idea there is not like an intern at the big company, and so you just eat crap for years so that you can get the higher position. Paul doesn't see this as some sort of phase you pass through to earn leadership. He sees it as the definition of what leadership is. It's service. The orientation here is for the sake, it says, of the saints. But the other thing I want you to notice is this word devoted. It doesn't just say that they found a way to serve the church. It says they devoted themselves to serve the church. The idea here is that they made intentional decisions sacrifices, reorganize their lives. In fact, do you know how the King James Bible puts this? They were addicted to the service of the saints. Now, in Old English, addicted just means devoted, but I think it's important here. The recognition is those who are pastors in the church should love the church, should be devoted to the church, should be addicted to the service of the saints. That doesn't mean there's not difficulty. Paul knows a little bit about difficulty. We'll find out all about it next year as we go through 2 Corinthians. It doesn't mean that there aren't hard times. It doesn't mean that there aren't frustrations. It doesn't mean that you have some sort of rose-tinted glasses that you see the church in. Augustine, who was one of the great pastors in church history, said this, the church is a whore, but she's also my mother. Okay? 
I resonate with that. You all should. The local church matters. But these men had devoted themselves for the care and the nurturing and the training and the equipping and the growing of God's church. It says also that they were fellow workers and laborers. And once again, that word for labor is usually translated toil. Okay? It means work that brings sweat. It means effort. Now, <clears throat> when Paul lays all these things out, it's in that context that he calls them to be subject. Stephanus and Achaeus aren't people who are, you know, advocating for self-exaltation. They're not people who have demanded to be obeyed. They're not one who are self-interested and mostly want the position for the privilege. They've just leaned into the responsibility. Effectively, the, the word here for devoted themselves, in the New King James, it says they ordained themselves. The recognition here is they just took the responsibility upon themselves. And the truth is, when we ordain pastors in this church, we make the same recognition that it's really God who calls pastors. And all we do is recognize that this is a man that God has called. But what has he called them to? He's called them to a devoted service of the church. He's called them to what Paul calls in another place, the labor of the word. He's called them to care for and nurture the church of Christ. And so he says, be subject to such as these. Now, <clears throat> I find the book of Hebrews to be helpful um, in explaining kind of where Paul is coming from. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 13 says. He says that uh, the author of Hebrews says this in verse 17 of chapter 13. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And so what's, what's he say here? He says the role of the leaders, the ones that he's calling for a bish, uh, 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 obedience and submission to, their role is to keep watch over your, show, over your souls. Many, maybe some of you recognize where this idea of keeping watch comes from in this context. It comes from shepherding, right? In fact, the word pastor comes from the same idea. It comes from the noun to shepherd. Uh, I guess that would be the verb when I put the word to before it. Um, but that's their goal. That's not just their calling. That's what they actually want to do. They want to care for the church. And so what he says is, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, because that would be of no advantage to you. Okay? Serving the church is a privilege. Serving a church that wants to be served is a joy. That's the recognition that both of these passages are making. But, but here's the thing. We really have been captivated by this idea of mass communication, of this idea of the conglomerate and the global. We've recognized the, the fact that across this nation, or even across this world, there are some people who are incredibly gifted. Mind-numbingly so. 
But God has designed the church where that's not enough because you cannot get everything you need out of the ministry from a stranger. And the truth is, the pastors you listen to in podcasts can be edifying, they can be encouraging. The Christian books that you read, and you know of all people I would encourage you to read them, can strengthen your faith, can clarify misunderstandings, but those men and women won't show up when your marriage is on the rocks. You can't call them and have them pray for you. They won't embrace you when you're weeping. And Jesus, to express who God is and the message of what God did in reality, took on a body and hugged people. Have you ever noticed that not a single time did did Jesus just do a mass healing? where there was just a crowd and he just snapped his fingers and everything was taken care of? No, it was personal touch. He took time for everyone he healed. He laid his hands on them. He spoke to them. Sometimes he put his arm around them and pulled them aside into a quiet corner. Even on the one occasion where somebody snuck a healing, right, when the woman came up behind and grabbed the hem of his garment, he wouldn't let it go. He stopped and said, somebody touched me. Somebody just got healed. Somebody tell me. Why? Because she needed more than healing. And so he has this personal conversation with her. Now, I don't know if you see this phenomenon of God's plan as a pro or a con. Trust me, I'm very familiar of the weight that a message like this brings on my own shoulders. The weight uh, of, of my own shortcomings and failures in this capacity. But what I want you to understand this morning is that the local church is essential to God's plan because in one sense, God is a local God. He's transcendent. You can't draw a boundary around him. You can't fit him in a box. You can't reduce him down to something you understand, but he's also imminent. He makes contact with actual individual human lives. And the primary way he's chosen to do that is through relationship with other people. So we need that in our lives. In fact, we see an illustration of this in what Paul commends them for. I want you to notice what he says here in chapter 16, uh, in verse 17. He says, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunus and Acacius because they have made up for your absence. Now, that sounds like a jab doesn't it? He says, I'm so glad they're here because you guys really let me down, but they made up for it. That's not what he's saying here. If you look at Paul's heart for the church in Corinth, despite the fact that difficulties are starting to rage hard and certain people are out to get Paul, it's pretty clear even in this letter, it's explicit in 2 Corinthians. He doesn't want to run away from them. He doesn't have a forget you mentality. He's thinking, I wish I could be there right now. He's got his own thing going on, and he can't be. What he wants to do is be there face-to-face with the church. And when he says here, they made up for your absence, it means the church was present in these three coming to see me. He says the same thing. He says, (coughs) verse (coughs) 18, they have refreshed my spirit as well as yours. In other words, they're coming has given me someone to hug, someone to be hugged by. 
it has made up for the distance and the gap. Now, I don't want to downplay communication in lesser forms. I want you to recognize that Paul still sent a letter and that that letter is the word of God, right? That it's so important, we need the Bible. But even there, God calls the local church to be a people who collectively gather around and under the authority of scriptures together. Because Christianity is not Christianity without incarnation. It's not Christianity without embodying. That's why in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, Paul spends all that time saying, you collectively are the body of Christ. You're each members. You're each different parts of the body. That's why he pointed out that God has given gifts to the church. The spiritual gifts are when the power of Jesus Christ touches another individual life through a person in the church. We need the local church, and so does the world. At the end of Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis's introduction and explanation and defense of Christianity He explains why he gave it the title, Mere Christianity. He says, basically, I've covered the nuts and bolts of what Christianity is, but all I've done is invited you into the foyer of the house. He says, if you want to get into the places where there's a fireplace and food and conversation, you're going to have to go through the door of a local church. You're going to have to be a part of a community. And I would say the same thing, that the house that God is building in the church is massive. It's global. It's multilingual and multi-ethnic, and it is way beyond what we can even comprehend in its scope. But it is made up of many rooms, and Christianity as it's lived, as it's experienced, and as it impacts, only happens in the rooms. Even though sometimes a person leaves one room and comes into another even though sometimes we get to invite someone to share from us from a room all the way down the hall. Christianity is designed to be local, to be relational, to be committed in community. And like I said, I know we harp on this all the time. It's because we don't have anything like this in the modern world. Even families, which you kind of get grafted into It's just given community that you didn't choose, you didn't have to sign up for, is super threatened by the reality that we live in right now. There's so many things vying for our time and pulling those things apart. And we come up with technology like Facebook, so we replace friendship for voyeur. And we come up with platforms like Twitter so we can have a voice and not actually speak with our neighbors. And we come up with all of these nonprofits and things so we can give and never actually physically embrace a person in need. All of those things are good, but they are insufficient in themselves for change, for human life, and for community. So we should rejoice in the fact that, yes, God came at a time that involved slow growth, that involved growth that took years of development, that spread constrained by the limitations of travel and time because what God is doing is deeper than just a mass bulletin it's love 
and love is always embodied. Let's pray. Father, just like in the Psalms, where it says, how blessed is it for brothers and sisters to dwell together in unity, and compares it to the anointing oil running and dripping down the beard of Aaron. I know that what we're talking about is not something we aspire to. It's not something we have to develop or build. It's something that your spirit does that it unifies, that it breaks down barriers, that it calls us into relationship and then equips us to be part of the body of Christ. And I pray this morning for those who are gathered, for those who call this church home, for our family that's not present with us this morning, I pray that your spirit would pour out on us, that it would unify us, that it would draw us together and make us a local expression of the body of Christ. I pray, God, have mercy on us that we wouldn't mistake this for being the only church, but that we would also not neglect the reality that it's our church. Please, Lord, as we worship this morning, (coughs) refresh us in these things. Help us to recognize that you have work for us as a church to do here in our neighborhood, in our day and age, with the people who make up our body. Help us to do everything we do in love, to press deeper into knowing and serving and being served and being known and giving and receiving and loving together. I pray as well, Lord, that you would continue to raise up In our church here, men and women who are devoted to serving the church, even those that we would send out to start new churches, because we can't just carry the message in on a short vacation, and we can't just deliver your message via email or a large contribution. And so I pray, even if you want to do something global in our church, that you would do it incarnate that you would send those who you would send and that we would support those who send out who you send out from us we thank you lord for the goodness and the graciousness of your method that says love is not just a word or a hallmark card that god has written to humanity it's god becoming flesh It's doing what we couldn't do, dying the death that we deserve, living the life that we could not live, and then freely inviting us, not merely into forgiveness, but into family. I pray that our praises this morning would be full of the reality that we are yours and that we are one another's. Pray this in your name. Amen.